so that that intro song you use um i could tell that it wasn't like stock music because it had too much personality and um but I, but then i was like shazamming it and i was like not, nothing was coming up and I, so i was curious like where did he get that and i figured you must have made it oh that makes me feel better because anything uh i'm not really good at like things that are catchy melodically. So if anything ever people like it, I'm like, oh, I probably must have stolen that. I'm not going to, you know, like unconsciously in my mind, just like copied a melody or something. So the fact that it doesn't Shazam to like a very famous song that I didn't realize I was ripping off makes me Oh, happy. yeah. No, and I, I, th I thought it was, I'm thinking, oh, that's like a hook from, or I don't know, a hook is the right term, but I was figuring that must be like a, a bit of music from like a SoundCloud rapper or something like it sounds legit. That sounded really good. So, so uh, it's cool. You made it. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's uh, yeah, it's like, I think it's, um, it's, <laughs> it is, uh, it stands in contrast to all the other music that I made in that it's sort of like a, uh, pleasant and memorable little melody. So it's, you know, out of, uh, like a hundred hours of music I produced, that's probably the, the one seven seconds that I could say that about, but yeah, I, I kind of like it. That's cool though. Um, so I guess for context, for anyone who's listening to this, um, you know, we're going to put this out on both. Uh, I've been doing this thing just for a couple months. I call it, uh, uh, Granite Mountain movie club. I go by Granite Mountain on, on Twitter. Um, uh, you go by, is it a, deg a degree associate? Is that what it is? It's degree studies, degree is, studies the, is the at. And then there, <laughs> there was like, so you know how you can change your at? I don't think I've told this story before, but um, you know how you can sort of like change your at, but you'll keep your account or whatever. Yeah. So I was sort of like, I had an account for a really long time that was basically just my name. And I had like a lot of mutuals that I didn't want to lose, but it was getting to a point <laughs> where like the way I was tweeting and the mutuals I had, I was like, this shouldn't be my name anymore. And uh, for some reason, like the thing going on on Twitter, the day I decided this some years ago was just like some discussion about uh, like credentialism on Twitter and mm. uh, like people, oh, and like people putting degrees in their names. Oh, uh, all right. So I was like, I'm going to steal something about my dog's name, which is in the actual long name, and then something about degree studies. But it makes no sense, and it's not very memorable. But, uh, you know, it got it got my name out of there. So that was good. It always reminds me of um, <laughs> I went to, like, community college, and I got a, an associate's in general studies, which is like the uh, kind of the bottom of the barrel of like things you can do uh, at a at a well that's college. that's sort of what i wanted to invoke like yeah that like when when you're dealing with my account you're dealing with someone with almost or only the the barest minimum credentials <laughs> yeah. in every sense uh so yeah associate's degree in general studies would have been too long i think but that would have uh that definitely would have gotten the point across more yeah and then so then um, I think I probably even heard, I heard your interview with, uh, with Dr. Bennett, uh, and your own podcast, I think before I even knew who you were on Twitter, but, um, so you got the, your podcast two minute, it's two minute hate, right? Yeah. And that's, uh, oh, that's a reference to, um, to an old movie, isn't it? 
It's in 1984. It's oh, like oh, oh, 1984. Uh, okay, which is like. See, I like um, the phrase "the two minute hate," and like I think what it evoked for me was that uh, all my friends <laughs> say I'm like a hater. Like you know, if we if we go to like a movie or if there's like a new book or show, like I will always hate it. Uh, according to them, you know, I think I like things, but I'm, I'm known as a bit of a hater. So I was like, all right, this makes sense. But I'm really not trying to invoke, uh, you know, the, like 1984, which I think is the main, because like my podcast isn't really about like, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's sort of about like, to some extent, things becoming like crazy or incoherent, but it's definitely not like uh, you know, comparing the contemporary world to 1984 or whatever. So it's maybe a, a not the best reference, but I kind of like it as the name of a podcast. Yeah, I and I and I've enjoyed the podcast too. Like, um, and I've even this is one of my sort of tests for a podcast. Is it's like, do I can I send this to a normie? And um, I send it to some people, and they they thought it was cool. They're like, hey, these these people kind of think like me, sort of thing. Um, because it's not you can't box it in too easily. Um, like politically, cause you, you are talking about like, uh, I guess I'd call it like current affairs or something. Um, but it's like, it's kind of a perspective that, um, the more normal people I'll say the normal, not online people right. in my life, they're the perspectives they're not getting, like they don't hear that stuff. Um, so yeah, I sent the one you did with, uh, uh, with the rare candy guy, I sent that one to some people, and also the one you did with uh, with Mark from Good Old Boys. Um, those were both really good, I thought. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. And yeah, I think like um, I don't know exactly how to say it, but it's like on the one hand, as time goes on, um, I definitely get like more out of step with. Uh, like, let's say like the median American on sort of my political and social opinions. But that being said, I think one thing I don't love about Twitter is like the collective atmosphere of Twitter is very much like uh, pulling you to be the most confrontational version of yourself. And I, I don't think that's bad always, but definitely like on my Substack in my podcast, I do th think about it as like, if if someone sent my mom this, if someone sent my uncle this, like even if they disagreed, would they think I was expressing myself uh, in a way that was okay? Like they wouldn't call me pissed off, you know, being yeah. like, you're totally misrepresenting something or you're totally out on a limb. So like, I, I do think all things being equal, I like to be more judicious in my expression, even if it's uh, sort of, you know, my take is going to end up somewhere somewhat abnormal, but it's, it's just, at least for me, I guess it's like lack of discipline and the same way Twitter, uh, addicts everyone, but it's impossible for me to remain as sort of, um, like under control <laughs> as I would like on Twitter. So I like, you know, opportunities to do sort of longer form expression where I can, yeah, you know, like not alienate anyone right off the bat. Um, yeah, I increasingly think of Twitter and and what you know what we'd call just online. It utilizes different languages, and so I think it there is a lot of stuff that I post or people post that 
Uh, I wouldn't necessarily like you couldn't put it in front of, you know, a family member or something and have them even make sense of it. It, it would be like reading another language. Um, and then I think, but that being said, yeah, I, uh, I, I agree with your take on, on how, um, how the, the medium like forces you into those, into those boxes. But, but at the same time, it's sort of like intellectually and culturally, it's like you have to get in there and, uh, use the language of the medium and like maybe create some space. But after that, you probably have to, uh, you have to back off a bit, at least, at least with some of the more like, Oh man, I, I don't want to use uh, an offensive word, but just kind of the, the more, uh, blunt approach that you maybe use to clear that space. Yeah. I mean, the thing is like, I don't have many, uh, I don't have enough followers on Twitter to feel like anything I do really matters, but I do think there's like, for some big accounts, there actually is some like, it would be hard to map. It's not straightforward, but it's like, there is some Overton window shifting or there is some, you know, like people tweet things and then like Tucker talks about it or like, it, it seems like, you know, we could talk about something like COVID restrictions that there's like a discourse on Twitter that eventually makes its way into the wider discourse offline. And so like, I appreciate that, like the, the sort of confrontational nature of, of some accounts or like the work they're doing uh, might be having like some positive secondary effects on discourse overall, but like, it's not, um, I mean, first of all, like I'm, I'm definitely not the one having that effect. Maybe I'm amplifying some people who are doing that, but also just like, it's not a, it's not a uh, sort of space that I feel comfortable in. Although <laughs> weirdly, I like, I think my instincts are to be like more confrontational in real life than in like a digitally recorded medium. Cause it's sort of like, well, if I'm like a little rude to this guy on the street, like no, no one's going to know. Whereas, you know, <laughs> if you have like a, uh, if I was justified, you know, I'm not, I'm not picking fights with strangers, but I just mean, uh, like sticking up for yourself, being assertive or a little aggressive IRL makes sense to me, but online it's like a little weirder, but yeah. Well, regarding, um, regarding your follower count, anyone listening to this, who, who came here through me, who saw a link I posted, definitely go and follow. Um, uh, what's the, oh, I'll put the at in the, uh, in like it's the at degree studies. And are you at granite MTN? Uh, yeah. Um, and I'll, yeah, I'll just, I'll, I'll write that or something, but okay. Um, well, and is there a, is there an interesting, I'm curious about the the name and also then like why movies were the thing you wanted to do. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is good. These are both good. Um, so the name, okay. So, so I think we, you know, we sort of kind of know each other through, uh, some of the same people I'm broadly involved with like the the online uh, Latter-day Saint or, you know, Mormon uh, community. And in Utah, there is this, there's this place called the Granite Mountain Records Vault. And it's this, it's this pretty big um, cave. That's like a man-made cave. It was, it was drilled out uh, that, that is used for storage of records. So I think at one point in time, I kind of thought, I kind of thought when I was naming the account that I would, that I would mostly post like historical artifacts 
particularly related to like uh, like Latter Day Saint history, but it just more evolved into just posting, just very general, you know, political squabbling sort of stuff, um, uh, and just like jokes. But that was the inspiration for the account. It's just the this vault is a very cool place. Um, there's you know there's a handful of, of vaults like it in in the world where you know it could withstand uh, you know a weapon you know a um, weapon of mass destruction or something. And in, and the purpose of this vault is for keeping, you know, family history records and, uh, you know, information. So that was the uh, inspiration for the name. And then as for movies, it's movies are just simply my favorite thing. Like I, uh, like to talk to people about movies. I think it's a good way to, to get to know a person is by like dissecting a movie or something or going, you, you mentioned kind of like going with your friends and then they'll say you're a hater um, which I got that a lot too. People would be like, Oh, can't, you know, the, the real life version of, uh, let people enjoy things. I'd get that all the time. And it's like, no guys, I, I actually enjoyed it. I think I might've enjoyed it more than you. I just want to talk about it. Like, I just want to like, you know, analyze scene for scene or whatever. What did you guys think about this? what do you think about that? And, and yeah, I would usually get dismissed as a hater. So that's movies are just my favorite thing. And, um, not that I, I don't I don't take upon myself this role of like cultural curator or anything, but I do think a lot of the uh, online spaces lacks like some some cultural discussions. Um, you, you see people talk about like aesthetics and stuff, and then they and then they they don't seem to have like great taste or don't don't seem to be that clued into like good music or good movies, and so it's just something I want to talk about and like here you know. Uh, yeah, it's just something I, I feel like I, I can talk about and enjoy doing it. And it's a good way to get to know people. Yeah. And I, I, you're, you're sort of alluding to the whole aesthetics conversation. I have always felt and increasingly feel though it now it's actually changing that like there was a weird mismatch and I've seen people on the left talk about this, that like a lot of, uh, like the great American art like great movies, great books were like pretty reactionary in nature because they're always like, if they're like morality tales or hero tales, they're sort of like, um, I don't know, they're bittersweet about things that are changing or they have a pretty like traditional moral message. And the main way that they would sort of like pay off progressive interests is through like having a gay character or like a mixed race couple, but sort of like the, the narrative uh, structure would be like much more traditional or at least like lionizing traditional values. And I think in the last five or 10 years, this has changed, but I always felt like I liked movies or I thought a lot of movies, like a lot of good movies were sort of um, just like crypto trad and sort of like this depository of, like a secret way of uh, looking at the world in a different way, but that it was because the artists weren't, maybe they weren't aware or they weren't particularly transparent about talking about like, uh, you know, the nature of those, uh, the messages in the films, um, you know, it wasn't like, uh, you know, people on TV or on NPR would never be like, Oh, this is a reactionary film, but if you were, if you're sort of looking at the implications of the message, it might be, I mean, I'm trying to think now of what a, well, you're, you're very much touching on like this. There's a rant that I, um, that I go on sometime about this very topic. Like 
you know, every few months, someone posts, um, some celebrity will post something like, oh, there is no such thing as conservative art or something, which uh, I, I think I know why they think that. But then you go back and look at like uh, virtually every movie and not not that like Second Amendment or whatever is is always a well anyway like half of action movies are like second amendment commercials uh, it's like or it's like good guy with a gun uh saves the day or or almost yeah almost every movie well, not almost but many and it used to be more but like valorizes a lot of conservative ideas about like responsibility and uh the individual and you know oppressive government things like that like that it's like you can say there's no conservative art but a lot of good artists are actually very conservative in their own temperament. Like the way they live and create uh, is conservative or the actual stories they tell are actually celebrating virtues that you'd probably normally uh, associate with, with conservatives. Yeah. And I, I think some of them aren't so like, there's some of them where you sort of say like, is this classically on the right left axis? Like I think a lot of the action movies too, they're almost always about like a certain bureaucracy or institution being incapable of addressing a problem appropriately. And like the only way it actually gets dealt with is like an individual who will sort of put themselves at risk of punishment or something to go after. It's like, is that conservative? I don't know. It's very American in sort of its, uh, you know, focus on individuality and maybe it's, Maybe it's quintessentially American to be frustrated with like bureaucracies or institutions. I don't know, but it's definitely not like it's not just like straightforwardly progressive, which is supposedly what the politics of, of Hollywood are. So it's it's interesting. I, I think a part of it is just that. Um, yeah, I would almost go the opposite of the rant. Like people say there's no conservative art. I would almost say that like there's no progressive stories because the stories we tell have had the same structure since like, you know, ancient man. And so those things aren't necessarily going to be politically conservative or like they need not be, but they are sort of going to be um, traditional in some sense, because like, you know, the hero's journey or like what we consider good story development has sort of like remained the same. So to, um, again, so it's much easier to, to put like progressive elements into your film, you know, through who you cast or some sort of other, yeah. uh, like shallow overture to a concern, but often the story structure, you know, yeah, it will be about like, cause even, you know, it, I mean, there, are, it's like, even the like movies about the civil rights will become sort of like great man theory of history tales. And it's mm -hmm. like, is that really what the progressive worldview is. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to speak for other people, but certainly there's more going on than just, um, you know, than just a contemporary worldview. Yeah. And then, and then I think the movie that, that we had, we had arranged to discuss here, um, uh, hell or high water, which I think was uh, 2016. I, that's a good, this is a good example of, um, well, maybe not a good example, but it's an example of, it's something that does not quite fit neatly into the, you know, left or right because, well, we'll get into this, but it's, um, yeah, it's got a, it's got a quite a bit, there's actually quite a bit of politics, at least that, that could be, uh, could be discussed from this. So we'll get into that. But, 
Um, I, I would, I have to mention, you know, today is February 1st. It's the first day of black history month. And I'm pretty sure this movie has no black people in it. I don't think there's a single one. So I don't know. Is there like a, you know, you know, the Bechtel test. Yeah. Yeah. Is there like a Bechtel test for black people in movies? I don't know. I saw, I saw, uh, this might be like a famous tweet, but someone tweeted the other day is they're like, I don't watch the moon landing because it fails the Bechdel test. And that, <laughs> yeah. that was making me laugh. But yeah, that's interesting. I think that there's maybe only one minority character, which is the Alberto, the cop's partner, or yeah. only one minority character that where like it's, you know, stated that they're a minority. There might be, I guess there's like um, people of color in the banks and stuff, but yeah, maybe no black people. And then, yeah, I because the other thing is I don't know much about um, the part of Texas where it's supposed to take place. So, like, uh-huh. I don't know if, like, that's uh, – I'd be curious to know from someone in the area, you know, if only Texas or Coleman, Texas, if those are real places. Like, if the demographics are sort of uh, – like, if they capture the place accurately or if it's, like, you know uh, – because I assume there are uh, places in Texas that are very white. I think of sort of the border area as being like more Hispanic at this point than white. But yeah, so this really movie know. is this movie is taking place in the Lubbock area, and um, yeah, I, I don't West Texas. I'm, I'm I'm guessing it is probably you know majority white and Hispanic, um, and there probably aren't a lot of black people in that area. But uh, but yeah, from I've not spent a lot of time in West Texas. I've spent some time in East Texas. But um, from what I've read, people suggest that the film does capture um, a certain reality of West Texas, uh, at least aesthetically and sort of um, maybe economically. But, uh, yeah, but yeah, and it's I, I also noticed, like, again, not knowing about the area, it was sort of um, conspicuous to me that like Native Americans writ large aren't really referenced, but the Comanche are referenced several times. And I didn't know if uh, West Texas was like a traditional home of the Comanche. When I looked it up, it said that like, you know, the plains where the Comanche mostly were was Oklahoma. Um, Mm. But I guess, I mean, maybe they must have had some reason to, to focus on the Comanche. Yeah. I think in the, well, we'll get into this in a minute, but I think in the film, when they go to that casino, I think that's an Oklahoma casino. Oh, okay. Um, uh, on the, on the reservation. But uh, real quick, I, I don't know if you ended up listening to any of the uh, other episodes I do, but um, I, or episodes I did, but I do a little game where um, I ask the person who's here what they thought the Rotten Tomatoes score, both the critic score and the audience score for the movie would be. Uh, so if you haven't if you haven't cheated and, and you don't already know, I'd be curious to hear what you think it is and your reasoning. You know, it's funny. So I haven't looked. Um, if this movie came out today, I would guess that the audience score was conspicuously higher than the critics' score. But I feel like even 2016 the critics were like less uniform in their alignment against like, I feel like in 2016 you could make like a poor white people trying to get one over on the man movie 
And only like the odd critic would be like, this isn't the narrative we need right now. Whereas I feel like now it would be much more problematic. So I'm, I'm going to say that the critic score was like 65 and the audience score was like 85. Um, okay. So you're very close on the audience, but um, your analysis I think was right for the critic score that, that at the time they were, but it would have been more sympathetic to it. They were much more sympathetic to it. The uh, critic score is 97. So essentially, you know, every critic liked it. Oh, wow. Well, I think that's, uh, that's good. Cause it, I think there's a lot of like technical ways in which it's not that I even really know, but it seemed it's a beautifully shot movie. All the acting is really good. Like I think the soundtrack is great. So I'm glad that it, it got its due because I think it's a really excellent movie. Yeah, I think on craftsmanship alone, it's essentially perfect, and they, um, it could never, yeah, it could never probably go below sixty in, in terms of the eyes of critics. But I think, but I think if in twenty twenty two, this had just come out, it it would be in the sixties probably, and because and there would be numerous uh, reviews that mention you know something about. Oh, you know, the, the, you know, the main, and I'm, this is going to be, you know, full spoiler zone here, but which is just like, I don't, I don't believe in spoilers anyway. So, uh, I'm sure there would be numerous critiques where they say, oh, and of course the handsome white guy gets away in the end. You know, he does this. Can you imagine if a POC had done this same stunt, it would not have played out this way. And, and, and no studio would make a movie like that or whatever. So, um, but yeah, all right. That's interesting. I think your analysis was, was perfect. Um, and then another thing I wanted to get into before we, we get into the meat of the movie. Um, and some people, when well, I brought this up in a, I think in a group chat, this movie, and I called it a Western and some people are like, that's not a Western camp. It's not, you know, Westerns had to be made during a certain period. So I don't know if you are like how much of a film guy you are, but do you consider this a Western, you know, and why or why not? Um, so I guess I'll just say first off that I don't know, I am not of the opinion that a Western has to be set actually in the old West. Like I, I think I've seen some, uh, movies, I, I don't know if King of New York or something, but sometimes a critic will say about a movie, like this is an urban Western. And I think I know what they mean. Cause it's sort of like stranger comes to town. There's like a series of boss fights you know, there's a certain, there are certain like narrative qualities to a Western beyond the old West. It like be that not regardless of the setting, there are certain narrative elements that could identify a movie as a Western. I feel like this movie goes in and out of them. Um, I think that the, so the main guy is, is Toby. Um, what's his brother's name? What's the Ben Foster? Uh, it's a similar name. It's like Toby and Trevor, Toby and Travis, something like that. Yeah, so I almost feel like the Ben Foster character is in a Western, but it's not his movie. Like, it's it's Toby's movie, and Toby is sort of like a... Uh, he's not a nerd, but, you know, he's a smarter, softer person, and, like, his brother is a cowboy. So I, it definitely has um, Western elements, and, and the Ben Foster character is like a, a cowboy character, but... I don't know. I, I think it could probably be convincingly argued either way. Mm. Oh, it's uh, it's Toby and Tanner, by the way. Oh, that's right. That's right. 
Yeah. I mean, I, to me, it just intrinsically, it was a Western and for the dumb, obvious reason of, of it being set in the West and, uh, having cops and robbers, uh, bank robberies and, um, and, and shootouts like that to me, that's just like, okay, it's a Western. Like that's, uh, to me, it makes it a Western, but, um, all right. Yeah. I guess, you know, I guess that's all true. There's also like a, uh, there's a genre of movie people talk about sometimes called a heist movie. And I think, uh-huh. I think one of the qualities of a heist movie is that you're interested in the specifics of the plan. Like part of what's interesting is how they plan to get away with uh, like the crime. And what, what distinguishes maybe that from Western is like in Westerns I've seen, you know, the robbers are just using like sheer force, you know, they show up with, guns or whatever it's less interested in like a clever plan so maybe that's that's part of why i resist that classification but yeah certainly it has it has elements of both yeah this yeah and and as to the heist category to me this fits in as a heist uh heist film because yeah because there's an it's not a super complicated system that they they have it which actually kind of makes it cool because it's pretty believable um but, but it's a little bit more complicated than, or at least thought through than, than, you know, than I would do if I was uh, robbing banks. Yeah. And I've, I've heard people say before, one of the reasons I think this movie sticks out in my mind is, I don't know if I was watching a YouTube video or this was like a lecture somebody gave, but I've heard people in law enforcement say like, there are such things as the perfect crime the problem is nobody wants to stop. So like they sort of imply that like, you know, if you had a discrete amount of money that you needed and it was relatively small, like you could probably do your crime and, and go off into the sunset. But the problem is like, uh, you know, human nature, but also just like the nature of criminals. No one's ever just going to, you know, rob a couple banks and then stop cold turkey. Like that's not how it works. And so everybody ends up getting caught because they can't stop. So I think it's a, it's a great premise to be like, I forget what the number is, but like they need 43 grand uh, to pay off like this um, reverse mortgage and a tax lien. They need 43 grand. And I guess as a result of that, like maybe I'm getting ahead here, but they're, they're robbing like small bills from smaller branch banks, which like, you know, even knowing nothing, it's just easier to imagine like, oh yeah, you would meet less resistance if that was your plan. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's get into it. Um, all right. So, uh, the, I think the opening scene is, is really solid. Like I, I knew, um, five to 10 minutes in the first time I saw this and I don't remember when it was, but I knew like right away, that I'm going to like this. This is going to, I could just tell like they're, I can tell whoever made this has thought it through and, and this is going to be a solid ending. Like that first, the, the, it starts with a robbery and I, I think it's the first one either of these guys has done and they're a little, they're a little inept. Um, and they're sort of like criticizing each other. And then that lady's getting under their skin. Um, and the one brother shows really quick that he's, uh, I think it was it's Tanner, like the the kind of the hothead uh, Ben Foster. 
he kind of shows immediately when that manager shows up that that he's liable to do something stupid that's going to get them in trouble. Um, I just think that opening is like perfect. Yeah, it tells us a lot. I mean, I remember, so I, I rewatched this movie uh, yesterday and a bunch of things that struck me this time, I remember them striking me the first time. So one of the first things, it's funny because the, the movie's like, uh, it's, is it understated? I don't know. It's it's subtle with some of its themes, but the movie almost opens. You're like seeing different scenes outside this bank, but on the wall of the bank or a nearby building, uh, one of the first things you see is there's graffiti that says three tours in Iraq, but no bailout for people like us. So you're kind of like, okay, like, and then you, you move in pretty quickly to this robbery. So you're, you're sitting there being like, okay, I think, you know, we're working with a sentiment that's like, these are people who, you know, they have no legal recourse to just sort of, uh, succeed in America or whatever, like they're downtrodden, they're put upon. And then, yeah, there's a lot of interesting psychology in the first Robert. You can tell that one of them is less nervous than the other, like Tanner seems very assertive. Uh, and I think the thing they're confused about is like the, the first employee who's there, the woman, she doesn't have keys uh, to the, the vault or the drawers where the money are. So they have to wait for the manager who's showing up second and they're like uh the woman says oh is this the first time you boys have done this or whatever and then tanner's like shut up but i think um it's interesting that they show us that mistake first because a, a sort of theme of the movie is how smart the plan is and how like toby is really smart and disciplined and i think it's it's an interesting choice because in a lot of, again, in a lot of heist movies where like they want us to believe a character has a foolproof plan, like they'll make them sort of uh, like an unrealistic genius who like you never see make a mistake. Whereas they do a great job of showing that like Toby is a smart guy, but he hasn't done this. So he doesn't know, like there's things he thought of that a criminal wouldn't think of, but he also is not a criminal and so doesn't have any experience with this and is, you know, sort of surprised by things he wouldn't think of or whatever. Mm -hmm. Another, another thing in this opening scene, I think it's this opening scene, which is an, like another aspect to why this movie, I think would be viewed quite a bit differently, even just five years later. Um, I, th I think that's that lady who looks at his eyes and says, you're not even Mexican. Yeah, like um, why? Why it's disappointing that white people are doing this seems to be her sentiment. Yeah, or like yeah, yeah, and um, the way this movie plays with um, with race and you know whatever is, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm sure someone's still doing this, but but this movie, got, I think it got nominated for best picture, didn't it? And like, I'll have to look that up. But you, I don't know if you can even just a couple years later, I don't know you can do those jokes now. And then, and then we'll, we'll talk about this later, but like the entire relationship of the two, um, uh, Texas, they're, they're Texas Rangers. Yeah. The two, the two Rangers, like is, is entirely like, uh, race jokes. Yeah. And that's like, I mean, we can, I, I don't want to get ahead, but yeah, I think there's like that sort of relationship, like an antagonistic, but ultimately affectionate, inter-ethnic friendship is like was sort of an artifact of action movies until pretty recently um, yeah like the uh 
uh what was it uh, you know jackie chan and chris tucker and all that uh and, le- and lethal weapon movies and stuff yeah and basically every um i'm blanking on his name right now jesus who's who's dirty harry clint eastwood, uh, eastwood yeah, yeah like every sort of modern day clint eastwood movie he has like that relationship with somebody who's not white and i think in gran torino he even explicitly like takes the mom kid to the barber and is like cut my hair you dago and the barber is like <laughs> screw you Pollock. and then he turns yeah. to the kid and is like this is how men talk to each other yeah yeah and there's people that uh you know you'll see people say this that like that an indication of a healthy society is is that this this stuff happens um which i'll, I'll go ahead and say sure that i mean it sounds better than the alternative so <laughs> Yeah, I think that um, it's interesting. Certainly my experience uh, has always been that like uh, in my male relationships, even with other white people, you know, if they're just like ethnically different than me, if they're Italian, especially, you know, Catholics who are, I'm Catholic, but, you know, Catholics who aren't Irish, like I certainly feel compelled to insult them. Uh, And if people aren't white, we definitely tease each other. But I think it's, um, I think it is a, it is a male thing because it's sort of similar to, it's, it's just a form of giving each other shit. But I think that the one thing that the movies do, that's like a little bit, um, I don't know, of course, movies are romantic, but it's like whenever they portray these relationships, it sort of reads like, oh, you know, he really loves this guy and would like die for this guy but he only knows how to show that affection through like calling him slurs or something. Whereas like my experience of life is that there are relationships like that, but you could also just kind of like somebody or feel indifferent to them and still have fun teasing them that way. Like it's, it, it need not be like a crypto way of like really strongly bonding with somebody. It's just like, in my view, it's like a legitimate form of humor and communication. So like you could be great friends, you could be (laughs) acquaintances, or you could be like somewhat neutral towards one another. But the the movies definitely like to portray it as like these old guys that say racist shit love each other so much. It's like, (laughs) well, yeah, maybe sometimes. I don't know. Yeah. 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 This, uh, this movie, I mean, yeah, I, I think they handle it uh, in a really fun way. Um, and, uh, it's, it's a little interesting because with the, with the two Rangers, the, uh, Jeff Bridges character, he, he goes pretty hard. Um, at least, at least in relation to how much the other guy seems to accept it and give it back. The other, the, the Alberto, his partner, like I think it's uh, Gil, Gil Birmingham, Birmingham or something. He, uh, he doesn't really dish much back um so it's a it's a little funny just from like a cultural perspective that they would have that they would portray it in that way that um because it's not one for one that's for sure it's like two to one or three to one um no yeah bridges is giving it and i think that um you're totally right that he goes hardcore like i think he's um they're they're watching like a televangelist in the uh in the hotel room and he's like he's like i'd rather have you like uh, cut the head off a snake and like dance around the bed than like yeah do a rain dance shit. Or yeah, yeah it's like pretty 
and definitely like the if someone were going to make a movie like this today you would assume it would be very like a very staid racism where maybe the guy was like oh like what are you going to have for dinner a taco you know it'd be like really yeah uh dialed down but i think what they want us to think about alberto is that is that sort of like uh and i like this a lot i like this in movies whether it involves race or not but like alberto is not fighting back because like alberto is a normal guy with a <laughs> with a family and like a healthy relationship to his job whereas yeah. <laughs> jeff bridges is like never off the clock as far as we know lives alone and is an insane person so i think what you're supposed to take from that is like alberto is just like not a miserable guy and the other guy kind of is even though the other guy is even though jeff bridges is uh admirable in many ways he's like you know and lots of male characters are like this like they're they're single-minded about their uh project in the movie in the narrative in a way that is like somewhat pathological and you yeah. you also sort of know that like okay jeff bridges is like broken and unable to be happy and alberto is fine and normal and that probably means alberto has to get killed Oh yeah. 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 That's a good, that was a good assessment. You know, it's a, I, I would not have the, the way you frame that about um, like the, the, the way that the way they joke with each other kind of shows that Al, Alberto has a bigger, a, a bigger, more expansive life than, uh, than Jeff Bridges character. That's insightful. And I would not, I didn't quite, I would not have quite realized that, but that, but that totally resonates as true. Um, uh, I, well, there, there is no off topic. We, we can go wherever, but, uh, I'm going to jump back to, um, jump back to that opening scene. Cause they, so then they, they kind of, they, they get away and they have these getaway cars and they go and bury it, which I thought was like, I, I was already like all in, I was already like, this is going to be great. And then that touch, I was like, okay, this is perfect. Like this is, um, that's a, a really interesting touch. They're going to bury these old crappy cars. They're going to every job. You can kind of tell every job is going to have its own car. Uh, cause these guys are pretty thorough. Um, every job's going to have its own car. They're going to bury it, I guess on their land or some other land. Um, which is a, a kind of a cool visual. Um, and it got me thinking about the cars. I was, I was just like, okay, well, uh, another reason this couldn't have been made today because even beater cars now are pretty expensive and, yeah, I was I was thinking yeah. about that, like especially when they buy the truck and you know they, yeah. they hand the guy like a wad of cash and he's like, "Good riddance." It's like, man, that would be eighty grand right now. Yeah, I mean, there. I think they go through five, four or five cars in the course of the movie, maybe maybe even six or something. And now I don't think you could get each one for less than like, for less than like two to three grand. But but it was it was the it was the case back then that you could probably pick up that like that old Bronco or something that they use in the end. Um, you could probably pick those up for less than a grand, but you can't now you simply cannot like even the, even in terrible condition, it's going to be like two grand. Yeah. And I think um, you mentioned them bearing the car. I think there's two strategies in movies to sort of like reveal a plan. And I think that the harder one is to just like slowly let details slip through the course of the narrative uh, and like it, you know, by the end of the movie, the viewer has caught up with what the plan is or like it's been fully constructed. 
which is sort of what happens here and which I think is way more impressive and hard to do with the writing than I feel like increasingly in movies, or maybe I'm just thinking of crappy stuff on Netflix, but like a lot of these Netflix crime shows, they'll literally have a time in one, you know, the way they approach exposition is somebody will be like, okay, so here's the plan. And they might even have like an animated section that sort of breaks down all the parts of what they're trying to do. And I like it much better that, like you said, they're doing all this weird stuff. Like I remember they bury the car and then they're talking about how like they hit two banks in the morning, but they're like not on schedule. And I think one of them makes reference to the fact that they only got like a couple grand from one. So you have all this weird information where you're like, okay, they're burying these cars. They're not stealing a lot of money and they have plans to keep moving from branch to branch. So like, I don't know. I find it very enjoyable uh, through the course of the film to have sort of different aspects of the plan dropping and you're, you're trying to put it together as you watch. Yeah. 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 definitely in, in uh, 2021 or 2022, they would have had to add like two or three more banks to their list to uh, cover the cost of the cars. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah. The next heist, I'm actually drawing a blank kind of on the next heist. I, what I remember from that more is when the, when the Rangers show up, uh, there's some good jokes in there. Like, I think it's that one where the lady describes them as um, he's asking for description and she's like, I think she says they're white, but, but they're dressed like those thugs in Dallas. Um, And then there's one of the best lines of the movie is uh, Jeff Bridges is, he sees like a, you know, kind of this big fat uh, stereotypical like bank manager or bank president. He's like, that looks like a man who could foreclose on a house. Yeah, and I think it's the same scene. What I'm remembering is uh, there's like a local guy driving by in a truck. I like wrote down some of the lines, but Jeff Bridges asked him if he saw something. He's like, oh, did you run across the robbers? And the guy goes, he's like, if they ran across me, they'd be swinging from a rope. And uh, <laughs> Jeff Bridges is like, the only person that would hurt uh, is you. And the guy goes, if you could find the tree. And then sort of wakes at him and drives off and the Jeff Bridges goes, I love West Texas. And like a big theme in the movie is sort of like the, uh, <laughs> the vigilantism of the locals. Like, uh, yeah. you know, in one of the, in one of the bank robberies, people end up being armed and people follow them. So that was sort of, I don't think I thought about that the first time I saw it in 2016, but you know, rewatching it this time around, it's like, it's been another, I guess, six years of the general culture frowning upon people ever doing their own law enforcement or whatever. Obviously, we've had a couple of big trials related to that issue. So it, it stuck out to me more this time. But yeah, they have. I, I think one of the things about the movie is that all these little characters, it's like, you know, when you have your your skeleton of a movie or whatever, you have a story you like, you have to fill out the in-between with like little snippets of dialogue and little pieces coming in and out of your story. And I think assuming your, your skeleton is good, like what makes the difference between a forgettable movie and a great movie is like, do these little interstitial characters and lines like ring true to life? Could they be real people? And I think all the peripheral actors and dialogue in this movie 
is just like excellent. Like the the sassy big girl at the diner who, yeah. who ends up not cooperating with the cops. And then like there's another waitress who, uh, you know, tells them they can't order their steaks anything but medium rare. And the only choice they have to make is about like green beans or, or corn. Like, and I think especially too the the dialogue between Toby and Tanner, like it's all just like really good and really true to life. So even when the plot isn't being advanced, it's like really enjoyable to to be with these characters who seem real and seem like they have a distinct personality. Yeah, I mean, I think there's um, I, I'm sometimes people will say like, oh, there's not an ounce of fat in this movie or something. And I don't always say that. I, I wouldn't always say that's a, a good thing. It's usually said as a compliment. But um, this I think they find this movie finds a good balance of being like there's constant contemplative moments, but also they don't waste like any screen time or any dialogue. And they, they do a lot of work with those, with those locals who might only have a couple of lines, uh, you know, like that. I think it's the second or third robbery where it's the old, it's like the old guy is the only one in the, in the bank. And they ask him if he has a gun. He's like, yeah, of course I do. And, uh, they take it out. But like, you know, that guy's great. Like every, every sort of local that gets engaged has like, you know, they, they all put up their shot and they, they all kind of nail it. Yeah. And I think, um, to talk about like, I mean, I'm going to get uh, pretentious cause that's just the way I am. But like the movie makes really, really difficult choices about sort of like the morality of what they're doing and expects a lot of the viewer because it's like, we continually see that locals in the area like share their angle at or share their anger at the banks. Like even the the cops sort of make reference to uh, like the local banks sort of predating, being predatory towards everyone's land. And uh, like people in the diner were sort of sympathetic to them. And yet we're also shown locals who, as far as we know, are good, normal people like shooting at them. Uh, mm-hmm. and getting like very upset. So it's like, you know, it could have been uh, like a Robin Hood story where like they just went with like, oh, the locals love this because uh, they're actually, um, you know, they're they're taking it back from the man or whatever. But they they take a much harder choice, I think, which is to say like, no, yeah, there's some sympathy for it. But also when it's the place people keep their money, like they're very... Uh, they respond very negatively to this. So like they, and they sort of also show us, like I was thinking in a lesser movie, Tanner would never end up killing anybody because the director would be like, well, we want the audience to root for the main brothers. And the whole point of having Toby be a genius is like, they're so smart that they don't have to hurt anybody. But the movie's like, no, if you did this, you would probably end up uh, getting in some shootouts with people and killing some people, which I think is like a much more, uh, I don't know. It's a much, it's a much braver choice. Yeah. And, I, uh, the, the, the two brothers, the way it's kind of split out. So Chris Pine is like, you know, he's the good, the good brother. Uh, and, uh, Ben Foster's the bad brother. And it, I guess it's sort of like the, the town on one hand is sympathetic, but like you say, those those vigilantes are also very excited for an opportunity to you know to chase someone down and shoot them um it's sort of like they're sympathetic to chris pine 
and they want to shoot Ben Foster. So they get both. You're able to get both out of, um, I mean, you could even think of the brothers as like one character and, uh, it's like kind of the, the shadow and the not shadow, whatever you'd call that. And, um, it's, it's actually kind of funny because so like Ben Foster's character, he, he, you mentioned Robin hood. So Chris Pine is Robin hood, but Ben Foster's like the Joker. He's just sort of like, he just enjoys this. Um, he's having fun with his brother uh, and he is happy for the opportunity to steal things and shoot people. Um, and you know, that's sort of like, that's what the, that's what the West Texans aren't going to tolerate is, is him, but they are somewhat th- sympathetic to the, to the good brother. And in a, in a funny way, not in a funny way, but kind of a overt way, I think the, the Ben Foster character sort of wins the movie in a way because he, uh, he really gets everything he wants. He wanted like, he wanted to, he wanted an adventure. He wanted to indulge in like violence and, uh, and criminality. And, and he wanted to go out guns blazing and he gets all that. Like he gets to kind of do everything he wants. I mean, Chris Pine wins too, but, but, uh, but he sort of, you can tell he's the kind of guy that might live with some guilt or, or whatever. But uh, but Ben Foster he sort of gets everything he wants and finality. Yeah, I also think that the movie there's a, a trope in crime movies or heist movies where we'll have like a, a central mastermind who's also like a pretty good person, but unfortunately they've involved their their hothead relative or friend from home in their affairs. And that person is always ruining things and upping the moral stakes because they aren't smart and they aren't uh, they aren't righteous in the way that the central character is. But what this movie actually shows, and so in those plots, it's usually like the main heroic character would have gotten away with it, but he's dragged down by his you know less righteous uh, sidekick or whatever. But in this movie, yeah. it's sort of the opposite. We see that uh, Chris Pine's naivete would have gotten him in trouble or stopped at various points. And it's only Tanner being like a psychopath <laughs> that uh, gets them out of the situation. Like another moment with this where like, I think this is the point of this scene is um, when I think what we're supposed to conclude is like a casino prostitute is talking to Toby at the casino bar. Yeah. And she's sort of like, we don't know exactly what he was going to do, but she's like, you know, he probably should have already turned away from her and they're still talking and he has this big pile of chips. And then Ben Foster comes over and is just like, uh, so like rough and violent with her. But I think he he's like feeling her up and finds that she has already stolen some chips uh, from the pile. Like he finds them on her person. So it's like, oh yeah, he's being an asshole, but like he he is the one who knows this world. And if Chris Pine was navigating it alone, you know, he would just get rolled in the hotel room or whatever. So like, it's, it's not actually the case that Toby has it all figured out uh, and could do this without Tanner. He really needs Tanner to protect him. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, That's actually a pretty um, funny scene because uh, you can see that the Chris Pine, uh, Toby. Yeah. You can see Toby is like, he's enticed by this, uh, this, this working girl and it sort of suggests that he would have uh, taken the bait. Um, and then, 
Tanner drives her off, but then Tanner gets a girl of his own, just the old fashioned, you know, he just, you know, chats her up. Um, it's really actually interesting how o- over, I guess it kind of builds on what I was saying a minute ago about the Tanner character. He just, uh, he gets pretty much everything he wants through the whole movie. Um, just by taking it, I guess, or, or, or yeah, demanding it. No. And it's the movie is, um, it, I think the Tanner character is fascinating because they also allude to the fact that, um, there's a little exchange where they're talking about, um, like their father being abusive and, and talking back to their father. And, uh, Toby says to Tanner, like, you never understood that talking back to him just made the beatings last longer. And then Tanner says something like, no, I figured it out, which is why I killed him. And, uh, I think (laughs) that's when you find out they killed the father, but that's sort of another instance where like people who follow the rules or are existing in a certain moral frame, like keep encountering these unsolvable problems. Like maybe one is, you know, an abusive father. Like, what do we do? We, we try to perform the father beats us. We talk back. He beats us longer. And it's like they can't even consider uh, the action that would actually end things because it's, you know, it's unthinkable, like murder or whatever. But Tanner is just sort of like, oh, that's what it takes. Then, like, I'll do that. So he's he's sort of a um, he's like amoral. But the the more uh, the people in the story who are who are bounded to some morality have to use him to solve their problems because like within the structure of the story, that amorality is the only thing uh, that can, can get it done or whatever. Yeah. He's the only one who um, his, his, uh, his temperament matches sort of the, uh, the, the world where it's at. Um, you know, he's, he's amoral or even, uh, you know, a chaos agent, but uh, I, you know, I guess in the, in the morality and logic of the movie, that's, that's who is going to, uh, to win in, in a world that's amoral. Yeah. It's like the only thing that can go up against like an unfeeling, uh, predatory system or, or something like that. So the movie, like, I, here's a question. Would you, would you think of this as a, as a, a populist movie? Um, maybe, but I, I guess a thing I wanted to say about, um, when we were talking at the beginning about like reactionary themes in art is like, I think there's a way to be um, aesthetically reactionary where it almost transcends politics because like, I don't know, I'm going to be very literal here, but it's like this movie is not really saying like poor people get together. I mean, you know, if you give a, a really like literal textual reading of the film it's not saying like if poor people band together uh they can like take back power from the system i think it's much more tragic than that in that it's like the fight is so one-sided uh between like individual random people and sort of like the machine of society that the best you could ever do is sort of like come up with a plan just for yourself to like claw back a little bit of money or a little bit of dignity, but you know, you wouldn't change the world. You wouldn't change the nature of the relationship between like the financial systems and, and random citizens. You would just maybe get this small 
win for yourself. So like, I know I'm, I'm sort of splitting hairs, but I think sometimes because I think a lot of movies are reactionary in this way where it's like, they concede <laughs> that sort of like modernity is immoral and sort of like, uh, you know, oppresses individual people, particularly people with what we might call like good values, you know, small families, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then it like presses them to become less moral. But often the stories don't offer hope in a political sense. They more offer hope either through like some, you know, transcendence or just like a weird little thing they do to sort of get back at the man. So like, is that populist? I don't know. It could certainly... A person could definitely leave this movie and feel motivated towards some populist cause. But I almost feel like it's because, um, again, another another theme that comes up that's sort of interesting and that I agree with is like Alberto says, you know, 150 years ago, all this land uh, belonged to my people. And like the grandparents of, of the people who live here now came and took it from them. And now the bank's taking it from them. And, you know, like, just like my people, they will be dispossessed. So like, and what that implied to me is that there's sort of like, not that it's explicit, but that implied to me that there's like a, uh, maybe a eternal cycle of predation. And that like, the movie's not really about like, how do we change that world? How do we get rid of that cycle? It's more like how might an individual uh retain some dignity despite knowing that they live in a world where that eternal cycle is is taking place and yeah and that, you bring up that uh yeah that part where um alberto's saying that and uh, i like that scene a lot he you know he's you know he's saying you know it's not gonna be an army that takes this over it's it's already being taken over and it's being taken over by the banks and i felt like he was like one sentence away from getting banned from twitter <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's right, because you, you'd have to ask yourself, like, obviously, if you're making the comparison between, you know, sort of like whites taking the land from Indians, and now the the white Texans land is being taken by, you know, blank. Um, it's interesting. It's like, okay, so there was like an ethnic and population comparison in the first dispossession. Uh, I, I think the movie would sort of transition that ethnic like native versus white to a class one. And in this sense, I think yeah. it is populist that I think, you know, there might be, <laughs> there might be a different movie where it's like, you know, it's the like Ellis Island people dispossessing like the older American stock or something. And it has more of mm -hmm. like an ethnic tale. But the sense I got from this movie was that it was about like, this is sort of about like city people dispossessing rural people or something like that. Like the educated and affluent, uh, you know, building up complex technological and cultural systems that more normal, more traditional people can't uh, understand or operate in and which allows them to sort of take yeah. everything from them, which. Yeah. It's, it's a uh, financialization. Like that's kind of, that comes up quite a few times. It's basically, um, the machinations of, of banks and uh, other financial institutions and how they, yeah, they sell things off um, or they, or the way they structure deals to all but ensure 
they win. No, and it is, uh, I, I got... it is sort of genius. Like, they didn't get explicit with it. But I'd never seen someone before, and this made me think of it, like, they didn't say it explicitly. But it's, you know, in school, you always hear about, like, oh, the, you know, some European, like, bought the island of Manhattan from a Native American chief by, like, trading him some marbles. And I think this movie does get you to consider, it's like, well that is sort of like a lawyer, like going to some old lady's ranch and being like, you need a reverse mortgage. And like, I'm yeah. going to own the land now, but don't worry about it. Like there is, I, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen that comparison made explicitly before. And again, here it's not explicit, but I think from Alberto's comparison, you do end up thinking like, Oh, okay. Yeah. There are some, some similar, uh, you know, themes here. Yeah. Um, I'm going to jump back to the, uh, to the casino. And I think possibly maybe the best, the best kind of moment of the movie, I think is when Tanner is playing at the table and, you know, there's the Comanche guy there and they're getting into it. It's like, don't chase me chief. And the guy, you know, he's like a little, he's miffed. And then when he's going to leave the table, the guy gets in his way and they have that, that exchange about, you know, like, how the Comanches, um, how, how it means, uh, oh, what does it mean? It means like, uh, I think I remember what? this whole exchange. So I, I think yeah, he, he's sitting at the table. He says the, don't chase me chief. And then he says, you Comanche. And the guy goes, yes. He says, Lord of the Plains. And the guy goes, Lord of nothing now. And then he gets yeah. up and the guy says, do you know what Comanche means? And he says, no. And the Comanche guy says, it means, enemies of everyone always or maybe he says forever but and then ben foster says you know what that makes me and the guy says the enemy he goes no makes me comanche and then they yeah i i think so that the interesting that part i feel like they um you you remembered it much more clearly than i did but uh they're they're you know i i can tell what tanner's line is going to be like three sentences before he says it uh they're, they're they're telegraphing it pretty hard but but it's still like it's still a very rewarding line just when he says that makes me comanche like that's i think to me that little that exchange is like the best part of the movie yeah that's such a good point because if someone asked me like uh just abstractly like is it ever satisfying in movies when like the dialogue is totally you know forecast and predictable i'd be like oh no like if you see it coming it's not satisfying but you're you're 100 right that you know he's gonna say that and it still like hits pretty hard when he does um and i was also gonna say about the film i think that um i think it's interesting how tanner's character seems to think about indians and the comanche in particular i think i don't know if it's an age thing or a regional thing in the United States. But I think like, you know, I grew up in New England. And I think that by the time I was in school, the sort of period in which like a young man who sort of like loved nature or liked weapons or had an had an interest in like, the martial character of certain tribes, like that was sort of over. Um, or at least it was over where I grew up. Um, so it's interesting but I'm like aware for an older generation of Americans, you know, there were like 
young men who might like dream about being uh, from a certain tribe or something. Cause in their mind, it was this romantic thing where like, it's just you and your horse and maybe you uh, conduct raiding parties. And like, they associate that identity with like freedom and sort of, uh, yeah, like some martial capability or honor. And I think it's, it's interesting that uh, Tanner seems sort of caught up in that or that that's like a thing he's constantly thinking about. Yeah. I mean, that reminds me of, and yeah, and yeah, I think, I don't know if it's the fear of, uh, of appropriation or something that's, that's kind of reduced this, but I remember in the elementary school in the nineties um, and I, I'm, I'm from the West. I'm from, I was mostly went to elementary school in Utah. Uh, so, you know, we had a lot of, you know, that's ancient tribal land. So we kind of knew the map of where different tribes were from and it was kind of a big part of our, of our like education and, and also did scouts and they scouts incorporates or appropriates, um, a, a bunch of, uh, a bunch of native American, uh, like at least, at least some of the visuals as, as understood by, uh, people who made scouts. But, um, but it was, it's very much it, at the time it was very much seen as a cool thing. Um, and I, you know, I remember I had like posters on my wall that were like, the, you know, it's like 500 nations or whatever. And it had all the, had like all the kind of tribal um, boundaries and stuff across the, across North America. But yeah, it used to, it used to be a bigger thing. I'm pretty sure. Like, I don't think, I don't think the kids I know that were my age are, have that same, have that same exposure or like consideration of, even if totally incorrect, like even if they're not even getting the details right about what those tribes were actually like, it doesn't seem nearly as big now. Yeah, you're right about scouts. I'm actually remembering now that in some scout stuff, they did have this, like, there was a perception in scouts that, like, Indians represent something that's, like, brave and knowledgeable about nature, and we're trying to emulate that. So so maybe there was still some of it. But this is all making me think of, um, Alberto says another interesting thing that you definitely couldn't say today which is he says something weird to jeff bridges about like uh he sort of makes reference to like i don't know what specific history he's referencing but he's like he's like you know you you had indigenous people over in europe at one point and like somebody came and killed them and then like you ended up here and i thought that was interesting too and stood out to me because like i feel like maybe on both sides of the aisle there's like a resistance to ever thinking of white peoples or peoples of Europe in an indigenous state. Like there's uh, like on sort of the progressive uh -huh. side, it's like not wanting to lend that uh, moral like righteousness to them. But on the more like uh, racist side, it's sort of like, no, we've been civilized the longest or whatever. But uh, Oh yeah. There's, there's like, um, at least from that pro progressive angle, I see this somewhat often on, on Twitter or something. Someone will post some text from a, like from a university uh, coursework and it'll say like, it will say something to the effect that like, there's no such thing as indigenous Europeans or something like, so it is, it is, you're right. It is very interesting that they would, um, that Alberto would, uh, would make that point because it is, th there are people who literally believe like that there was, whether they believe it as a point of like, is whether it's an intentional belief or just a passive belief that they never really thought about. There are people who literally believe there's, there wasn't, 
that like this system of like taking and overcoming each other's tribes so, somehow people seem to think that that started in you know like 1600 right or alberto is saying today's settler colonizer is yesterday's displaced person because that's why they're settler colonizing and today <laughs> the the sentiment seems to be no there are actually people who have always been settlers and people who have always been indigenous uh yeah i mean yeah i mean yeah the his history is just the history of of people conquering and being conquered in in very simple terms yeah i think you know there's probably like a couple amazonian tribes on the river somewhere that can rightly claim that they've never stolen land in recorded history <laughs> but i think there's like 12 of them yeah <laughs> Um, all right, then let's, we'll, uh, let's jump to the kind of the, uh, the end, um, of the movie. Uh, let's see. So, you know, the last heist is ill-advised. They, um, they go too late in the day. There's too many people there. I'm talking about the right one, right? So they, they go in, there's like 20 people in the bank. They have, they get in a, get in a firefight at the bank. Um, they actually have to, you know, uh, Tanner actually drops two people and then they flee and they have two cars. Yeah. And it was sort of like a controversial decision whether to go because they had planned to hit a smaller bank, but, uh, and it was closed. Well, yes, they were going to hit two small branches and the first one was closed. And then Tanner says, we actually have to go to a bigger branch now because you're not going to get all the money you need if we just hit this one smaller branch. So they they sort of know that they're increasing the, the risk profile of their mission, but they sort of decide they have to do it. Uh, and Jeff Bridges sort of comes to a similar conclusion looking at the banks in the area. And he's like, the only one they could get, you know, good money at that's not too big is this bank and post. So he he heads there as well. Was the one that was closed closed on purpose to uh, prevent a robbery, or was it just like closed? I took it as just like everything in this area is like breaking down, like almost like maybe it was just out of business or like you know they didn't have patron. Like I just sort of they only open three days. A yeah, week cause yeah, because everything's not, sort not of in economic yeah. decay. Um. Yeah. And so then they, then they, they are, they're on the run and this is the part where it almost, it almost plays for like laughs because it is so like, or maybe not laughs, but like, um, what would you compare it to? I don't know. You get all these guys, uh, in their trucks who, who badly want to take part in some law enforcement action. Like, uh, and I get it. Like, I think I know, you know, I know some of these guys that would love this opportunity to get in their truck and, and justifiably, uh, hunt down a bank robber and and takes and fire some shots. So you get like there's like a caravan of like seven or eight guys uh, that are tailing the brothers, um, and then it culminates in the middle of the road with uh, with Tanner. And this is a really cool shot because he he uh, he kind of parks sideways in the street. Everyone stops. He gets out and like very nonchalant goes and get. I don't. I'm not. I don't know too much about guns, but. 
what do you know are you a gun guy does what gun does he get out of the back because it's no like, i don't i don't know much about guns either but <laughs> it's a it is some kind of automatic rifle that is yeah and so yeah he gets out and starts just mowing people down and like half most of those guys leave they retreat it, that's just a really a really cool scene yeah and this time I, I knew what he was gonna do but i remember the first time watching the movie being like what is he doing like even if he has a gun like how is he going to resolve this situation? And yeah, it does. It plays out in like a silly way, uh, but it's, but not in a way that like takes you out of the plot or anything. Like it's, it's an enjoyable moment, I think. Yeah. Well, and, and earlier, like, you know, a couple scenes before Toby is like, why are you bringing that gun? Like what you, uh, like you, you think you should have that on you, you know, in case we get, you know, stopped or whatever. And, uh, um, so yeah, I, I wish I knew more about guns because I could speak more about it. But then, but I, I do know a little bit about cars. I don't think that Bronco that he's driving, um, I don't think it was ever made like that to have to be like a truck. So it's like a modified Bronco. Looks very cool. Uh, it's a that's a very coveted car right now. Yeah, and he and you know Tanner goes and blows it up because they could have got forty three grand just trading the truck. Yeah, and so yeah, yeah, he uh, up that hill. He uh, yeah, he, he improvises a an explosive out of that truck, um, which is also uh, you know pretty cool. Yeah, that whole scene is wild. I wanted to ask you, um, do you think it's like it's interesting how they play it? So after Tanner shoots all those guys and they at least temporarily turn around, they drive to a second car, and Toby is expecting Tanner to come with him. And Tanner's like, no, I'm gonna, um, like, I'll I'll stay in this one. You go in that car. And they have sort of like a fraught moment. But I thought watching it this time, like, it's not so fraught that it seems like Toby knows he's gonna go die. But I don't know if we're supposed to think like he's just sort of slowly realizing it, so it's not that intense. Or I, I wasn't exactly sure what we're supposed to make of that moment. Yeah, I wondered that too. I, I mean, I think it seems obvious that Tanner's basically sacrificing himself to ensure because you know Tanner, like I said earlier, I think Tanner, uh, like this is how he wants to go out because he's like he's having the time of his life. Like he's he loves he loves nothing more than being up on the ridge and uh, uh, shooting people. Um, like he's like he's thrilled, and then I. Yeah, I don't know if the I don't know if the Toby character is just sort of like I always I always knew this was like the the path for for my brother. Like that's this is of course how it has to end for him. Um but yeah, I'm not I, I wasn't I didn't have a, a strong read on that, but but I do th- I do think that kind of builds into what I was saying about uh Tanner Tanner kind of at least has the least um he has the least nuanced victory. Uh you know, um of the film like Toby gets the money and, and gets to kind of get his family back a, in a sense. But, uh, but Tanner has this very like uncomplicated euphoric ending. Yeah. It's also, it's interesting. Like, um, y- you know, just bringing up Toby's family, like we don't re- So like his, his ex-wife, seems to not think much of him although their relationship is not like insanely hostile but she's sort of just like 
rolling her eyes when he's there. And his son also sort of seems to think he's like a not a great guy when they're talking in the backyard. So like it was interesting to me, like the movie, the movie is talking about like a group of people in America, many of whom probably have acrimonious relationships with ex-wives and possibly their kids. So like this makes sense from like a demographic point of view, but we haven't been shown anything in Toby's character that would explain like why his family didn't really like him. Do you know what I mean? Like on screen, he's a very like um, do the right thing, stand up kind of guy. But then his, his, it's almost like his family reacts to him as if he was Tanner uh, rather than Toby, which was interesting. And like, I don't know. It's, it's another choice in the movie that I thought was like, interesting and not typical of what a normal like i think the normal thing you do with that is like you make the wife seem like a monster and then you have the kids like really want to be with him and like admire him but he's like no you have to like listen to your mom uh but it's it's just very interesting the way they present it and like much yeah much more the real ar- life maybe the armchair psychology on this what i would go with is like he's that personality that sort of likes to be put upon. Like he spent his whole life, uh, watching out for, uh, this, I think he, Tanner's the younger brother, right? I think Tanner's older. Is Oh, okay. Well, he's so, so either way, Toby's more responsible. So in some sense, he's been like looking out for or taking care of his, his more wild brother. Uh, and he kind of, he might, it kind of implies he likes that, that role. Um, cause he, you know, he at one point Tanner says to him about he's it's like, well, you know, why are the uh, you know, why are like sweet girls, you know, so such devils when you get them, you know, in the hotel room? And uh, and Tanner's like, I don't know, I've never, I've never had a sweet girl. Like, he he's that kind of guy. I know these guys who, yeah, and Tanner um, says, You like them looking for someone to blame, yeah, 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 exactly. That line, like, I know these guys, even like, you know. Chris Pines is this very handsome guy and uh, he seems like a, other than being into bank robbing, he seems like a, you know, nice enough dude. I know these guys who get themselves in these situations where they kind of like to be put upon. Like they like, they kind of like being beat up for whatever reason. And uh, you know, he's taking it, he's taking it probably from his brother, from his parents. And he goes and gets himself a, 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 a wife. that's not very nice. Um, I think you're, you're a hundred percent right. And I just, I think that maybe that's an instance of bad casting because I can't see Chris Pine that way. Like, I think that maybe needs like an Edward Norton or someone who can like hit pathetic because like in a lot of these scenes, they make Chris Pine look like shit, like to a degree. Yeah. He looks, he looks worn out. Yeah. Like to a degree that, you know, you might be like, cause, cause I, I think about that diner scene too, when the woman sort of, hitting on him and it's like I think that if that's like an ugly or like unassuming dude it seems sort of pathetic like this this woman's giving you an opening but you can't take it but because it's Chris Pine I more read it as like oh what a gentleman like obviously he could yeah take it if he wants to but he's just being like uh he's being very respectful so 
yeah, maybe there are a couple moments in the movie that like I didn't read as intended because he's like a incredibly striking looking guy. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I kind of I kind of uh, glossed over that diner scene, but uh, that that's a good scene, and and it's especially you know so she she flirts with him when he's uh, he's there, and he leaves her this nice big tip. Um, and then the Rangers come after the fact and they, they want to, um, they want to confiscate the money as, cause it's evidence. Um, but it's, it's funny cause the, uh, cause Jeff Bridges is like, um, you know, he's like, tell me about that handsome stranger that came in. And, and she's like, who said anything about handsome? He's like, well, you didn't meet me in the parking lot. Um, you know, I, I kind of know you're on his side. Like he, and I'm thinking like, oh, this, uh, this, uh, this U S or this, Texas Ranger, uh, it sounds like he's a, he's red pilled on the, on sexual politics. He you know he knows he he now knows he's dealing with a uh, with a with a handsome high value uh, criminal. Right. This and this is sort of what I mean about like um, all art being reactionary is like this is a trope in all art that like some old wise professional just like does not buy the bullshit. Like in, in a lot of movies, there'll be somebody who, uh, like the way that they establish that they're smart or very good at their job is by sort of like rejecting, uh, like platitudinous truths offered to them by other characters, you know, in like a, in like a most, in the most like politically neutral way, this might be like on some show where like a woman or a man is like, I would never cheat on my spouse. And the person is just like, well, I noticed this and that's why I know you're cheating. But it's like, a, you know, yeah. it, it, just that kind of like skepticism uh, is often a way that, that characters show their like intuition or intelligence or whatever. Yeah. If, if Toby had been um, Steve Buscemi, uh, she would have been in the parking lot handing over the money, eager, eagerly handing over the money saying, you know, catch this ugly man. <laughs> yeah, it's. So that's interesting because then that that indicates that they're again it's like a more complicated picture of Toby because apparently he is he is put upon in this way but he's also still sort of charming or handsome enough that um yeah he immediately gets this waitress on side and I think they bring up at several other points in the movie that uh the waitress is continuing to not cooperate like I think at the very end um when Jeff Bridges is retired and he goes to the, to the marshal's office just to talk to the woman who's handling the case, she's like, yeah. And the waitress at the restaurant still says she's never seen this guy. Like we, we showed him a picture of Toby and she's like, Nope, never seen him. So it's like in these multiple dealings with the marshals, she's sort of going to bat for Chris Pine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what, uh, that's what happens when you, when you fall in love. Um, oh yeah. Okay. So then I, I took us out of, I took us out of the, the scene, but so then we, we go to back to the end of the movie, it's, uh, you know, Tanner's on the Ridge, he's shooting people. And then, um, earlier in the movie, it's actually funny. Cause Alberto has said to Jeff Bridges, I, I don't even, I keep saying Jeff Bridges. I don't remember his character name, but he, earlier in the movie, he had said to him something about like how bad of a marksman he was. And so, you know, of course the movie has to end with, uh, Jeff Bridges taking like a 200 yard shot, a headshot on, uh, on Tanner. Yeah. There's all these, uh, 
there's a lot of little details in that scene that uh, read really true and funny. Like when they get to the top of the, he, he has this local guy drive him up to sort of like another ridge behind so that he can get an angle yeah. on Tanner to shoot him. And when they get there, he, you know, he's old. So he's really like wheezing. And the guy's like, yeah. why don't you let me take the shot, old man? So again, like this local <laughs> just like really wants to get some blood on his hands. And Jeff Bridges is just like so annoyed. Uh, and I don't know. It's like all the details of that scene are, are hilarious. Well, yeah, it's 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 one. It's part complimentary and part like maybe a critique of, of some of these type of people. But um, it's kind of like a celebration be, uh, of of the of the kind of the texas the texas archetype because he's like you know how well do you know this land and he's like i know it's like the back of my hand um like you know these people do they, these are practical people who do know a lot of stuff and have uh, a lot of like skills that are that are not always celebrated but it goes the movie goes out of its way to like sort of celebrate these local people but at the same time uh point out how eager they are to to shoot someone yeah, and I, I know that for me, uh, like uh, coastal urban elite, I definitely when I it's it's definitely a a trope in movies, and it's a very appealing trope that like you have people with a lot of practical skills, uh, and those skills come up throughout the movie. And I I wouldn't say it makes me self conscious, but I always think during these movies like, yeah, I could be of no use in this situation. Uh, yeah, that one stood out to me because I'm I'm not good at orienteering. I I uh, um, I get lost all the time, and, and especially uh, I, I don't live in Utah anymore. In Utah, you have the mountains, and it, you you always know where you are, kind of, because you can look at the mountains. I don't have that now, and so I'm always getting lost. And so I, I'm I'm envious of uh of these guys who who know the back roads like the back of their hand. Right, and I think a theme, I think one of the things I was thinking about um when you, when they're burying the cars, like Chris Pine just jumps up and is immediately, you know, competently using this earth mover. And he's, he's made yeah. reference to the fact that he's, he's a driller um, and that he drills for natural gas, but now what they need is like oil drillers. So he's not making money anymore, but they do sort of show that like the various skills of the two brothers which are now not really economically prized have value in this elaborate crime they set up. So like, that's how they're making the use of their, you know, their competencies. Mm -hmm. Well, what did you, what did you think about? I think there's like one more set piece, which is when, when Jeff Bridges goes to see Toby at the ranch. Yeah. So uh, Jeff Bridges comes to, basically say, I know it was you guys. Uh, I don't, don't know every piece of how you did it. Uh, but kind of like, I'll be watching you, but, but also nothing I can do about it. Cause I'm retired and you essentially got away with it. Yeah. What I noticed this time rewatching that I didn't notice the first time is like, they kind of make it seem like, uh, cause at one point they're talking and, um, Jeff Bridges is like, he's sitting on his porch. He's like, I know your brother is a violent one, but this crime was like careful and smart. So I know it was you. Uh, and he's like, four people are dead because of what you guys did. And Toby says, uh, Toby's like, I've never killed anyone, but I'm happy to start today. If you want to go for your gun, like I'll blow you off my porch. 
And they <laughs> sort of set it up like um, Jeff Bridges' body tenses a little bit. And I didn't think this the first time, but this time I was like, oh, they're going to shoot each other. But then Toby's ex-wife and the kids pull up. But I, I was wondering, like, did you think they were going to get into a shootout if that didn't happen? And then they have this little exchange <laughs> where Toby is like, this is my wife's ranch, but I'm renting a house in town. And if you want to finish the conversation, uh, like come see me anytime. And Jeff Bridges is like, I'll do that. So I, this time I was wondering, I was like, <laughs> Oh, are they just making plans to like have a shootout and kill each other? But I don't really know if we're supposed to take that as just like banter or, uh, you know, a likely scenario or whatever. That's more how I took it. I took it more as banter. I took it as, um, this old retired guy is going to be happy to, um, to, to annoy you like to know, to annoy, uh, Toby going forward. Like he might, he might run into him unnaturally often. Um, like he's going to be watching him, but that, but that he ultimately was like neutered and he couldn't do anything about it. And because I think doesn't the, um, when, uh, when Bridges goes into like have his like last little meeting with the lady who's taken over his desk, aren't they kind of just saying like, yeah, we're, we're moved on. We're not going to investigate this. We don't really care anymore because it was such a clean, the final, uh, the final like payoff to the bank and using that same bank as the, uh, bank of record for the trust and stuff that they're just sort of like the bank's not going to pursue this. No one cares anymore. We're moving on to other stuff. So I, I think it's basically just like, it's done. It's out of its hands. No one's, like I, I, I didn't, th- I didn't think there was foreshadowing of any future violence or anything. Just, just that they, these guys are going to be uh, enemies, but quietly and from afar. Right. And I think what we're supposed to think is like, maybe this is too elaborate, but I think it's sort of implied that you know, we it's revealed in the latter third of the movie that the land that the bank had sort of stolen out from under Toby and Tanner's mom via a reverse mortgage or whatever has oil on it. So now it's important that the family get it back because this could be a source of wealth. And I think that what we can take from the end is like, they stole so little money that the bank stands to gain much more than $40,000 that they stole from managing this trust on an estate that now is going to be, you know, pumping out $50,000 worth of oil a month or whatever they say. And like, you know, I'm probably reading too much into it, but I think it's saying something about how like, this is the real way that problems are adjudicated, like through big players in America. Like there are no laws, there's no right and wrong. It's like, if you do something wrong, you have to make it worthwhile for like another big player and then you'll be protected. So like, as you know, as mm. long as they're getting their pound of flesh, you'll be fine. And so I took from that, that it's like, yeah, the law is not really about like moral transgressions. It's about like the positions of these institutions and their desire to keep making money. And because Toby thought of a way that they could get paid off, like he's safe because that's what you yeah. have to do. Yeah, that's a good uh, that's a good read. I think of it. Um, all right, so I'm going to move on to a few uh, general thoughts. Um, so I think you know this movie comes out nine years after No Country for Old Men, and, and and they're not that they're not very similar movies. But I think uh, 
people I've seen, I saw quite a few reviews that kind of compared them uh, because the setting West Texas and uh, you know, just the general theme of, of crime and, you know, do you know whose money you, you're stealing sort of thing? Yeah. Um, Tommy Lee Jones and Jeff Bridges. It's weird because Tommy Lee Jones, U S Marshall in no country is very like solemn and Jeff Bridges is sort of silly, but there's something about, you know, like men who are sort of long in the tooth who are very capable and yet might be matching up against something that's a little bit beyond them. Yeah. And it's that one last, cause they're both on the, on the eve of retirement. Yeah, yeah. So it's that one last, uh, and they, and they both have a similar, you know, in, in no country, there's that kind of the, when you're introduced to uh, Tommy Lee Jones character, he's, um, he's talking about, he's like laying out the, uh, what he thinks happened at the crime scene and, and the, uh, like the other deputy is like, Oh, that, you know, that's very, that's very lin- linear thinking. Um, Cause he's kind of a dummy and, and the Tommy Lee Jones character is smart. You see a similar thing when Bridges gets to these, the, the, the banks and he's like, Oh, you know, they stole this much. That means they're going to be st- hitting up a few more. They're raising, looks like they're raising capital for something specific. Like he's, de- you know, he's using that old man power of deduction. I've seen it all before sort of yeah. thing. Um, so that, I mean, beyond just the setting and some of the color palette and stuff, I, people compare the two movies, but you know, I, I think that, I think the, um, the comparisons of the cops is, 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 is valid, but otherwise there's, I don't see much overlap. Yeah. I think, um, the thing that like when you just, cause I, I don't think I've seen those comparisons, but the thing that immediately jumped out to me like in the difference between them just in worldview uh, that's like interesting to me is this movie is sort of like if you're a little bit clever and you're disciplined and you have some skills, like you'll pay a cost, but you could maybe get over on everybody. And (laughs) No Country for Old Men is so merciless in its like, if you step into the ring of like violence and crime, Like you have no idea like how dark and deadly (laughs) it gets. Um, Yeah, because you might even say like Josh Brolin is like maybe like Toby and Tanner, you know, rolled into one. Like he's like a normal guy, but he has some criminal competencies and seems like a serious character. But of course he just, you know, he bites off more than he can chew. Yeah. Uh, One weird thing. Did you... The, the movie is you know, was made in 2016 and I, I feel like it's set in 2016, but do you see a character use a smartphone at any point? I don't think I saw like many, any or many mobile phones. Yeah. Not, that's interesting. Now that you say that, uh, I have heard that, um, actually a lot of movies don't use like even contemporary movies don't use phones because they ruin Uh, because like you just can't have constant coordination going on on screen in your movies. Like, cause in this movie, like Toby shows up a lot of places where people aren't expecting him, (laughs) like, uh, at the Mm ex-wife's house or whatever. Whereas like in real life, you know, even if you had a non-smartphone, you'd probably call someone and tell them you were coming though. I guess the old, there are older people in my life. Uh, who will do like a no phone call, no text drop by, which is like a, a hilarious. Uh, I'm definitely going to do that once I get old enough to be able to excuse it because it's like, 
for people that rely on cell phones, they, you know, they act like you just uh, shot somebody or something, but it's, it's like a, a boomer, no knock warrant. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, Hmm. Yeah. I, so I don't think you really see phones at all. Um, and yeah, like it's, it's funny because there's a lot of things, there's a lot of like, you know, technical, there's a lot of technology that like, uh, the sort of very bottom of the economy does not pick up, but like phones are not one of them. So it's definitely a a conspicuous absence. Yeah. And I think you're, I think you're right about just increasingly we'll probably see people just leave them out of movies unless it's a specifically like a part of the plot that they have them. They'll just kind of treat it like the nineties and no one has a phone. It, It definitely also like, I'm trying to think now that you brought it up, but it's, I was trying to think like, is there anything you see on screen that means the movie couldn't have been set in like 1999? Because like with the cars they get and stuff, I I was just assuming like, Oh, they have a 30 year old car. I I guess um, the truck that Jeff Bridges and Alberto is, are driving looks pretty new. Like at least. Yeah. I think it's a newer F, 150 i think or or f-series ford i think but yeah i think that that's like it's like post 2010 at least yeah because that's that's the only object i can think of in the movie that uh (laughs) evoked uh like modernity at all yeah and and that i mean everything on a movie is kind of intentional because everything costs money so um maybe they're just going for a, a more timeless western look yeah yeah because it's Again, it seemed like all the cars they had were from like the 80s or 70s. You don't really see like phones or weird stuff on people. All the things people are wearing are pretty. Um, Just West Texas yeah. clothes. <laughs> all right. I think the last thing was you had mentioned uh, Taylor Sheridan, who wrote the movie and appears in the movie. Um He's the uh, cowboy that's driving the uh, cattle. Yeah. Do you watch um, uh, Yellowstone? I've only seen part of the first episode. That's all I've seen. But I remember you saying you had some some Yellowstone. I, well, maybe we, we can't get into the, too much of it because I haven't seen it, but maybe make your uh, pitch for wh- why I should or shouldn't watch well, it. it it's, it's similar to this movie not in a populist sense but in a sense of like it's maybe the show is maybe as political if you want it to be like if you if you come to it sort of thinking like i want to watch some some based shit you will probably find that but if you just want like a good engaging story it's also that but the reason i asked that is just because taylor sheridan plays like a uh very good like show cowboy in the show and so i think this is like one of at least three taylor sheridan projects where he he shows off his own uh horseback riding ability uh which apparently you know he grew up cowboying and is is quite good at and stuff but it's it's sort of like a funny quirk of his i i saw an interview where he said for for hell or high water he didn't want to be in it but they were filming and the guy they had trying to do it couldn't ride a horse convincingly. Uh, and then the 
the horse guys that they had couldn't read lines convincingly, like the, the extras who were doing horse work. So they like called him and he had to come down to the set and, and do that. Like that's, yeah, that's what he said. He says he doesn't really enjoy acting, but it sounds like he's putting himself in Yellowstone too. So maybe he likes it. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I guess, yeah, I was thinking of it more as like an Easter egg because I hadn't heard that. Um, but yeah, he's, I mean, I think, I don't know that much about him, but he's sort of an interesting figure just because he is, he's from that world. You know, he grew up on a ranch. And he keeps sort of making art about like people out of time who, you know, have relationships with nature and animals that are no longer really uh, as valuable as they once were. So I, I think like his whole canon is sort of an interesting topic. Um, oh, yeah, he did Wind River and Sicario. Yeah. OK. And I think he's and Sicario, too. It's like, you know, that this theme of like, <laughs> like you you can't really fight these things or like it's, it's dangerous to try, but, um, yeah, this guy, I bet, <laughs> I bet he has some, uh, some ideas that he can't vocalize. <laughs> right. Well, I think like, I mean, you know, with the damn internet, like I can't, um, but you know, like Indian Bronson and some other people, they talk about how just like one of the problems, uh, facing like conservatism or, certain ideas like traditional ideas is just that like if you value sort of social capital at all um you'll never just be like an out and out right winger because like the co the costs are yeah. too high and if you want to just be a person like really succeeding in your field whatever it is and so i do sort of assume maybe this is very self-serving but that there are some you know writers filmmakers whatever I mean, I think this about Kubrick sometimes, though, I guess I think he had some sort of like progressive beliefs on certain things. But I I do like to think some of these guys are like, OK, I can tell stories that sort of capture uh, that almost like very plainly say that, like, I think everything's moving in the wrong direction. But because it's narrative and because it's not explicitly political, uh, it'll be fine. And as long as I just sort of keep it in the world of fiction, uh, I will not be called out for this. And I, I sort of assume he is such a person though. You know, I know that it's, it's unfair in a way to, to speculate about other people's politics, but. Yeah. I'm looking at his, uh, his IMDB and it's like 2015, you know, so he wrote Sicario, Hell or High Water and Wind River. And then the Sicario sequel, 2015, 16, 17, and 18. That's a pretty good run for uh, those are all. I mean, I don't, I don't really remember the Sicario sequel, but those first three, that's a really impressive three year run. Yeah. And I, again, I think like he's almost Wind River, Sicario. Like, again, these are movies that if you, if you were not looking for politics, and you aren't the type of person who like makes those kind of extrapolations from narratives. It, like it, it's very plausible to me that people could watch all this stuff and just be like, Oh, those are just, you know, crime stories, whatever. But it's, there are some like persistent themes that I'd be interested in, in hearing him talk about. But again, th there's another way, you know, I, I'm just repeating myself now. I referenced this earlier, but I think they also, he also may claim that, you know, to the extent that, you know, his works are sort of anti-modern or whatever, it may not be 
in a political sense. It may just sort of be like, this is, you know, the tragedy of the human condition and I capture that, but I'm not, you know, proposing one solution or another. It's just human beings like struggling with that reality. Well, I think we need to find out where he was on January 6th. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely got uh he's definitely got the pipes to uh knock down a, a Capitol police officer <laughs> too, so I'll go through the footage. Um okay, I think I'm out of stuff except one last thing, which I just find funny. The director, David McKenzie, a Scottish guy, uh he's got a production company called Sigma. So uh this movie was made by a true Sigma. Oh man. So when we release this, we'll have to, at this point, just cue the Sigma grind set music to, <laughs> to fade out. <laughs> and then we didn't talk about the music. The music's really good. They it's uh, I saw, I did see like one review where someone was complaining about the country music. It's like, okay, what, what are you, what are they going to use? Uh, what else would they use for this movie? But um, it's a good soundtrack. Yeah, I actually I looked it up on Spotify today because some of the songs were really. Um, I think one of the songs I like best is called like "Sleeping on the Blacktop" or something. Yeah, the uh, Coulter. Yeah, Wall yeah. Song. So that I'll throw it on. I'll throw it on the end. Okay, here, perfect. Yeah, that's what they're playing when they're at the poker table, and that's a great song. And weirdly, they have um, that guy Nick Cave did a lot of the music, and he's yeah. like you know he's sort of a. Um, uh, like a normal, or he's not normal, but he he does lots of like indie music and stuff. So he did yeah. celebrated. Indie yeah, artists. he did some some competent uh, country-ish composition. So yeah, the people should check out the soundtrack as well. Uh, all right, cool. Uh, we went almost two hours, but uh, yeah, fun. this this podcast will be longer than the movie is.